The Canucks power play finally finds some life, helps the team to a 6-3, a much-needed 6-3 win over the Dallas Stars on home ice last night. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined, as always, by my co-host, Canucks insider, Thomas Dranch. You can, of course, read Dranch's work up at The Athletic as well. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, Drancer, I don't know about you, I had a pretty good weekend. And, I mean, throw the result out. But just from an aesthetic standpoint, that Canucks game was a good way to cap off the weekend because that was the most entertaining, most eventful, most exciting Canucks game that we've seen them play probably this season to date. It was it was the most fun game, I think, that this team has had so far this year. Yeah, I mean, from their perspective, too. I, and that's, I feel like, the key. You know, I've been saying on this show a lot, I'm not worried about the power play. Right? Yep. I, I thought that their skill level was going to play out ultimately. I looked at the underlying profile, and I didn't see cause for concern. But, without question... They were gripping their sticks too tight, right? Like they were the oh, five yeah. on four unit. Oh yeah, they were changing it up every single practice. The players looked confused. They looked out of ideas. They looked out of confidence. They didn't look like they were having any fun at all playing in five on four situations. Last night, they show up at the rink. They get that quick JT Miller goal, and I don't think you can understate how important that was in terms of breaking the dam, right? Yep. In terms of allowing this club to feel like themselves, feel themselves, frankly. Uh, just a little bit. And from there, they add two more power play goals. They looked dynamic. They rotated. They looked like they had ideas. They looked like they were having fun. They looked lethal. And that's what this team needs. Yeah, it's exactly what that unit needed. We will dig into both special teams, the power play and the penalty kill. Definitely uh, more positive things to say about the power play after last night. But we'll dive into the penalty kill as well throughout the course of the show. Get your thoughts in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say after the Canucks 6-3 win versus the Dallas Stars. 650-650. We'll try to incorporate as many texts throughout the course of the show as we can. And we'll, we'll dive into special teams. But just kind of big picture looking at that game last night Drancer to me and this is not a groundbreaking observation by me by any uh, any stretch but to me that really felt like the first time we saw the Canucks team that we all expected to see this year and I mean that for good and bad right I'm not saying you know oh because they won and we all expect them to be juggernauts that's not it at all <laughs> it's because the way that they won and the way the game played out right they, they still gave up plenty of chances they short, not just shorthanded. They gave up plenty of chances five on five. Thatcher Demko had to be really good, but the star level talent and the power play did enough to kind of paper over those underlying problems. And that's that's what so many of us expected to see this year. And it was kind of reassuring, like, oh right, that that wasn't based on nothing. We didn't all just take a big swing and a whiff on what this team might look like. There were reasons we thought we would see that consistently from them. Yeah, and and I mean, I I agree with you spiritually. Like, I agree with you in spirit. I think what you're saying has the virtue of being true without necessarily being entirely <laughs> true. And and specifically, you know, the area that I'd quibble with is we're going to talk about this team in this market. Not us, not you and me, of course, but this market's going to talk about this team today and say, the big guns, the big guns on this team are firing now. You know, like, Patterson scored. You know, they're going now. And it's like, there was nothing going on at 5-on-5 for that lotto line. 
the lotto line is now up at 65 minutes together at five on five. Yep. They're still mired in the mid thirties in terms of expected goal differential per moneypuck.com. There's nothing going on there. Last night they were outchanced three to four with Pedersen on the ice. They didn't score a five on five goal with the Pedersen line on the ice. Um, there was nothing doing. Like I think about late in the first, the Canucks through forty minutes played really well. For yes, me. like that was that was their best two periods back to back. I thought all season, hundred yeah. percent. And the so there's this shift in part of part of what started to look normal for the Canucks for me anyway was that Horvat Pearson Hoaglander line all of a sudden gave them a five on five line, and and not just last night but since they've been put together on this homestand has given them a five on five line that's starting to carry play that's starting to generate meaningful chances meaningful pressure on their on the opposition and that's something that, I mean the Canucks need another line going they did they had that last night but it was Garland and Pod Colson it wasn't the lotto line yeah um that's sort of one area where this team's still slumbering you know we talk a lot and and especially our inbox talks a lot about get Tanner Pearson get Tanner <laughs> Pearson out of the top six you better get him out of the top six um do you know who has two more points than Besser and Pedersen combined at five on five this season it's Tanner, Tanner Pearson. Pearson. So, you know, I mean, overall, you know, you like to see the power play going, but this team still needs an awful lot more from their best players, five on five. And as I look through yesterday's game and reflect on it, you know, one thing that this Canucks team sort of had that I, I didn't necessarily expect was this like super dynamic third line that scored a beautiful goal yes. that turned out to be the game winner, right? Uh, and one thing that, you know, this team still is doing that is – defying my expectations is their top line is non-existent like just it's just not there at five on five well and i think i want to i want to focus on the lotto line a little bit but i will say you know when i say that kind of felt like the team we expected to see in a way the lotto line struggling to me that doesn't necessarily disprove my overall point because one thing we talked about so much this year was that they finally had legitimate forward depth, right? And so what you saw last night is even with the lotto line still not truly making an impact at even strength. We know they accounted for three goals on the power play, but at even strength not making that impact, they still had two lines, as you said, Drancer, that were legitimately driving play and looking dangerous, right? And that was something that a lot of people thought could be the case in this offseason, right? Because you bring in Connor Garland, you bring in Jason Dickinson, who hasn't, you know, really not made an impact in a positive sense yet this season, but you, and then you have Vasily Pod Colson come in, right? And it hadn't, that, that game last night was the first time this year that it felt like that third line, and the third line has changed composition a lot. That was the first night it really felt, okay, this is a line that you can put out there and expect them to move the needle, expect them to play in the other team's end, expect them to generate scoring chances. And look, the lotto line has to be a lot better. There's no doubt about it. It has to be so, so much better if this team is going to meet its aspirations. But I do think you saw last night that, okay, if if one of the top three lines has a bad night, theoretically you should still have the depth to at least have two lines going. And that's a huge development potentially for this team. For sure. The thing about last night, the thing about last night's performance from the third line and from Vasily Podkolzin, for me, that was the first game that I watched him and thought, Oh, oh, he's one of the Canucks' best players tonight. Now, I know fans yep. think that a lot. Fans really like young players. I don't. I, don't, I, I tend to... Th- I, I don't like young players. My analysis of the game tends to be skeptical 
of of young pieces. And you know, I actually thought you've, about this. You've spent little... too long talking to NHL head coaches. Yeah, maybe. No, <laughs> no, you know, I think it's the way that I watch the game, right? Like, it's yeah. I, I'm watching for different things. I think than fans. Fans are watching games to be excited, and I'm watching fans. I'm watching games to have like really weird, nuanced takes on. Yanni Hackenpay and why he should be signed because <laughs> he's a good value player, right? Like, that's it's just a different thing. So, with Pod Colson, though, you know, I, and I thought about this a little bit last night when Connor Garland was talking. Connor Garland was talking post game and talked about the no look pass that he connected to with Pod Colson on. And he talked about him being a big boy and how the pass was actually a little bit off, but he, but he got it. Yeah. And there was just like a level of respect. In the way that he talked, not intentional, not intentional, subconsciously, he's like, you know, and we all know he can rip it, right? We all know he's yep. good, right? It's not just me that tends to be skeptical of young players. Like, veteran NHL players tend to think that rookies need to learn, right? They tend to be lower on rookies than fans, sometimes even than coaches and management, right? You, yep. you kind of need to earn a level of respect. It, it brought me back a little bit to the bubble, not the bubble, sorry, the 2021 training camp when they put Nils Hoaglander up right. on that... And I knew Nils Hoaglander and made the team not from anything that he'd done, but because there was a scrimmage, one of those simulated preseason games, and Edler started cross-checking him. He started playing him for real, <laughs> right? Like, he started giving the rookie the, a taste of what it's really going to be like. We need you. You're on this team. This is how it's going to be like. Get ready for it, right? Yep. And that was the moment that I thought, oh, he's he's clicked. I feel like Pod Colson's already... You know, Bo Horvat compared Pod Colson to himself. He said, Pod Colson reminds me of myself. Like, there's a level of respect now being paid to Pod Colson from veteran players on this team that I think mirrors how quickly he's developed some of the nuances in his game. Like, for me, I thought Pod Colson was on last night well before the goal. Yeah. Because this one area that I've talked about repeatedly, him struggling in, sort of connecting play from that defensive zone half wall. He was like lights out, like he was making these subtle plays to exit the zone yep. and make the types of plays that help align maintain possession, meaningful possession, drive play. Um, and he did it over 14 minutes at 5-on-5 five five consistently. The Canucks outshot the Stars 6-1 with Pod Colson and Garland on the ice last night. Like, they were tremendous. That's a huge development. And the fact that, you know, we, we've talked so much about Pod Colson's development, and we've talked a lot about... You know, my expectation, like, February, he'll be a different player. Well, we're game 12. He looks like a different player yeah. to me now. It's incredible. And last night, you know, we've seen the flashes from Pond Colson earlier in this season, right? We know he has the shot. We know he has the skill. Like, he's shown the reasons why the Canucks took used a, a 10th overall pick on him, right? So we've seen that, but you're right. We haven't seen consistently the other plays. We've seen the moments, but not really string it together. And I agree with you. I thought last night, even before he had the snipe and the impressive goal on the feed from Garland, he looked more, you know, you're talking about the, the small plays to kind of get out of the defensive zone and turn play uh, up the other, the other way. And I thought he made those, but I also thought he just looked dangerous and more consistent and kind of more confident in the offensive end, right? I think early in the year you saw a lot, of, saw a lot of tentative play from Pod Colson, right? He was almost a little too concerned about making mistakes, so he, see, he wasn't letting his his offensive skill kind of blossom and show. And I thought last night he kind of found the happy medium, right, where he wasn't taking unnecessary risks, but he was still using his skill, using his size, his speed, all of that to be a positive force on the ice. And that's kind of what I mean too, because. When we all, you know, we all go through the exercise when the roster takes shape in the summer and we we pencil out our lines and you start to think, okay, if this if this goes well and this goes well, what could this look like? And I think a lot of people kind of 
I don't want to say assumed that Pat Colson would be an impact rookie, but there's certainly there's a standard of rookie performance that has been set in this market, right? And I think people did. I yes. think the team did. Like the, the look at how this team is laid out. This team is laid out for Pod Colson to be a top nine player. Yep. And coming out of the gate, coming out of training camp, coming out of the preseason, I don't think he was. Yeah. And last night he looked like not just like he was, he looked like a plus contributor in that role. I'm not saying he's not gonna, he's going to maintain that or like continue to grow exponentially the way we've seen over the last 12 games, but it's a tremendous sign that he seems to be on this type of an accelerated learning. Well, curve. I think it's very positive that we're no longer talking about the growth he needs to have. Now it's about maintaining, right? And if he keeps growing and he keeps adding parts to his game, that's awesome. But if they get that player even cons- semi consistently this year, right? That's a big difference. Game changer for this team. You know, he played just under 13 minutes. Was on the second power play unit. Second power play unit didn't get a whole lot of time. I think yeah. just around forty seconds. He finished at about fourteen. Yeah. just over. Yeah, so he had. That's a that's a really nice number for him, right? And he earned it last night. And I think going forward, you know, the in- the comparison with Bo Horvat is interesting because I know you talked a couple weeks ago on the show making that parallel between Bo Horvat's rookie season, where he, you know, by the by the end of the year, he became one of the team's most important players in that in that team that went to the playoffs against the Flames. If Pod Colson is able to maintain this level and be an impact, dangerous third-line player and really give the team a dangerous third line, which they haven't had in forever, that really changes the complexion of the forward group for the rest of the season, I think. Yeah, it does for sure. And, and you know, the Canucks are going to need to figure out, like, if Garland and Pod Colson, they've only played 15 minutes together, but the results are really good. Like, the results are really good. It yep. looks really good. It makes sense that Garland would play well with a, a heavy press type. Now, I say this a lot. A heavy press type is like prime Michael Furland or or Zach Hyman or think about prime Alex Burrows, right, or, yeah. or Chris Kunitz to, on, on Sidney Crosby's wing. When I talk about a heavy press, I'm talking about a top six complementary player who does a ton of the dirty work and digging both in along the wall and in front of the net, right? If he can be a heavy press type player for this team in the top nine, I mean – those are $5 million players. Yeah. Like, those are $5 million players. If you have that on an ELC this season and for two years beyond, I, I mean, the impact is massive. It makes sense that you put a that player type with Con, uh, Connor Garland, and you're going to be cooking with something. Well, but, but the Dickinson factor, right? Like, Dickinson, you know, I think Dickinson's actually been better than this market realizes five-on-five five this season. He's been clearly the Canucks' best defensive forward yep. in terms of five-on-five five play, but he hasn't been great on the penalty kill. He's been, he hasn't made a difference on the penalty kill. Which is a, a spot they desperately need oh, him, right? So desperately. Yeah. And, and you know, on a line with Garland and Pod Coles, and I don't think that's the most natural fit. I don't think it looked like the most natural fit last night. Like, do you remember Artem Anisimov used to play between Panarin and Kane? Yeah. And one game he described his role on the ice as going around picking up after them with a pooper scooper. <laughs> and, uh, and, and like, I don't think Dickinson's going to be that guy on that line necessarily. But I do think that with, you know, w- one thing they can sort of consider is, is finding ways to double shift some of their more offensively calibrated centermen, especially if the lotto line's not clicking, right? Getting maybe Miller getting maybe Pedersen some minutes in between Garland and Pod Colson, I sort of wonder if that's an interesting approach that they can take, you know, uh, spuriously or occasionally to get their ice time up and, and put them in a situation where things are maybe 
a little bit more favorable, a little bit clearer, a little bit um, like clicking a little bit better than it is right now for Vancouver's top four. I, I also, you know, I don't think it helps Jason Dickinson's case in the market right now that when the team acquired him, they kind of let it be known to everyone that they didn't see him as just a defensive center. They thought he had untapped offensive potential yeah. as well. And then now he's sitting here with, you know, one point in – 10 games. Well, that was right? a little so, optimistic, but yeah. the trade was still a good one. Yeah, and, and fair, but it's just, you know, when, when when the team hypes you up a little bit like that, it's it's going to generate totally. some disappointment. Fabian Drun- Brunstrom in, yeah. in Ottawa right now, right? <laughs> like, oh, he had to be included. Oh, my goodness. Or who was the who was the famous Canuck? It was Dave Gagne, not yes. just the throw-in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, the, the Canucks didn't necessarily do Jason Dickinson any favors with that PR campaign, but I, I will also come back, though. Again, that to me, it speaks to the importance of the emergence of Pod Colson, right? Because if if Garland is the only player clicking on that line, then you don't have a third line, right? You have one good player out there with two players still trying to find their game. Totally. But all of a sudden, if Pod Colson's going and Garland's going, Jason Dickinson not going, okay, you can manage that. You still have a line that can be effective in spots. Well, so he's still in position. Yeah. He's just bobbling a couple pucks that maybe could be handled more dynamically. So right? I know we, we, we touched on him a little bit and what his scoring rate is doing, but I do want to talk a little bit about Tanner Pearson as well because that line was good last night, and Tanner Pearson was, again, instrumental in setting up a 5-on-5 five five goal, uh, getting the chance on net that Bo Horvat cashes in on the rebound, coming from behind the net. Big-time goal, and I also thought that that was the best Niels Hoaglander has looked in quite some time for the Canucks. He was dangerous. He was, you know... Not the key person on that goal, but still helping them generate chances in the offensive zone. And it just has that. He's not quite at the Connor Garland level where he just looks like the shiftiest player in the league all the time. But he does have that that intelligence to kind of keep the puck, find the open spaces with the puck, and just keep plays alive. Just keep the play alive and then let, let Tanner Pearson and Bo Horvat kind of go to work in front of the net. And last night it resulted in a goal. Yeah, I mean... Connor Garland's a human dipsy doodle. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Niels Hoaglander is a shifty player, but, you know, I don't think he's too... He's not so Garland that he can't complement straight-line players, right? And and I honestly think that Garland's not a fit with Horvat and Pearson because they're so straight-line. And I just think he's... You know, I, I don't know that he walks in a straight line. You know, like, I, honestly, <laughs> I, I'd imagine it's hard for him to drive. You know, like, yeah. He's, yeah. He, 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 Connor Garland gets to, um, like, a traffic circle and he goes around it six times, right? <laughs> so, you know, I think the I think the Hoaglander-Pearson-Horvat line is crucial. Like, they've just been put together again, but the underlying profile of that line in the minutes that they've played together looks the way that I expected Vancouver's entire top six forward profile to look this season, like 60-plus yeah. percent of control, both in terms of attempts and scoring chances and expected goals. That has given them some stability. Like, you know, if you want to sort of see some signal in the noise that was last night, like, that line has given the Canucks, I think, at 5-on-5, five five, some breathing room. They've given them a top line capable of putting their opposition on their heels with all of the trickle-down effects that come from a line that you can count on to have heavy shifts. Yep. And, you know, right now, that that like that gives them some breathing room to let the lotto line figure it out. To, you know, uh, to give Pod Colson and Garland some shifts against bottom six competition. To to sort of let things... give them just, just give them some space to figure out some of the parts of their game that haven't necessarily been clicking. That, to me, is the biggest change that, like... 
you know, people people want to talk about the power play, and we'll talk about the power play yeah. and the movement. And you know, it's like one forward rotates one time, and they've reinvented five on four play. It's like it like water <laughs> water to somebody dying of thirst in the desert, right? Totally, like, yeah. Oh my gosh! Thank so, goodness! Thank goodness! So thirsty. <laughs> um, but the but the the thing that I sort of took away is like the best sign for the Canucks was there was one top six line that went out and was regularly generating. Chances and and good chances, not yep. not above the circles chances, right. below the circles pressure on a consistent basis against the opposition's best defense pair. That to me, like the Canucks need another line going like that. Yep. Obviously, it's the lot of line they need the going like that. But but the, the having just one changes the complexion of what this team is able to do and and how much on the front foot they look over the course of the game. And there are massive knock-on effects down the lineup from having a line capable of doing that. Having one line going like that at least puts you in a position where goaltending and special teams can win you the game, right? You know right. what I mean? And eventually you're going to need the other parts of your five-on-five -five game to come around, but it can at least tide you over and help you find some points in the meantime. We kind of started talking about the lotto line being, again, not effective at even strength last night. Does it still just come down to Elias Patterson? What are you seeing from the lotto line at even strength right now that is making them not effective because we've Pedersen and Miller have played together a lot this year. Besser has been in and out of that spot and no configuration have really have, have those guys looked dangerous at even strength. What I, I'm not sure we can just point the finger at Elias Pedersen at this point. No, I don't think so either. I, I mean, I'm seeing less from, from Brock Besser in particular. I'm thinking about last year when he started to look, you know, I've, and I've used this sort of phrasing before, but he started to look a little bit like a, a right-handed Chris Higgins, like in terms yeah. of the way that he was winning battles along the wall. That's sort of one area of the game that I haven't seen a ton. And then with Elias Pettersson, you know, I, I think you're noticing, for example, like he's more, he's, he's losing more battles physically, but it's not because of his size or anything right. so much as it's that he's not ahead the way he usually is. He, and and yeah. I just think, I just think, when Petey's off a little bit, he's off a lot. A lot more than your average player because he needs to be the sharpest guy on the ice. Like, he needs to be the cleverest, slyest, like, fastest problem-solving player. And when he's really on, it's like he'll track pucks a little bit faster than his opposition, right? He'll track a puck that gets skied, and he'll be right in position to control it. And if he's not going to control it and make a play, he's going to draw a penalty. Um, he needs to be ahead. Um, he needs to sort of have the answers, so that the checkers are just like asking questions when they come at him to, to be at his best. I, I just don't think he's quite there yet at five on five, but I do think he looked far more decisive and looked like he was having far more fun on the power play than yeah. he has at any point. And, and you hope from a Canucks perspective that the confidence boost at, at from the power play translates to five on five for Pedersen. It's interesting you talk about him tracking the game. I also just think you know, little things like receiving passes cleanly. And you're uh, right, exactly. because he, he bobbles a pass, and then he's in a position where the defender can engage him physically, whereas normally when he's at his best, he takes that pass cleanly and he's past the defender. Or he's into open space, and he's not even getting in that battle in the first place. Or he controls the pass so well that he makes it look like he didn't, but he actually has put the puck right. in the area that the defender is vacated, and he's using that momentum to win the battle and create space, right? I mean, those it's just those tiny little things that, like, when Pedersen's on, he nails every single one of them, right? There's a reason he's a perfectionist in his approach to just about everything. Like, even even speaking English, right? Like, Pedersen's yep. English has always been more advanced than he showed, but I remember being shocked, or not shocked, but really impressed when he did Halford and Bruff before yep. the season because I didn't feel like that was a medium that he would have been comfortable in 
even a year earlier. And it wasn't that he couldn't speak English. It was that he had such a high standard for how well he wanted to present himself and speak it, right? Like, he's a perfectionist. And I think it translates in his game. When he's not 100% on, when he's 98% on, it just shows an awful lot more than it does for, you know, a, a player like a Bo Horvat or, or, a, or a JT Miller or a Quinn Hughes, guys who are maybe a little bit more physical in terms of their route to success in this and, and you wonder if because he has those high standards for himself, if he's at 98% instead of 100%, if that affects him more mentally than it would a lot of other players, right? Like a lot of Maybe. other players be like, hey, I'm at 98%, not bad. That's pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? But with Elias Pedersen, you're right. He does have such high standards. At a certain point, that does have to enter into to how you approach the game. And look, it hasn't been there 5-on-5 five five yet for him. He gets the goal. He picks his corner on the power play. It was an Elias Pettersson, you know, shot that we've expected to see from him now. So maybe, just maybe, that's a sign of things to come for Pettersson at 5-on-5 and the rest of the lot of line as well at 5-on-5. Lots of texts coming in, 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Keep your thoughts coming in. We will get to some of them just after the break. The Canucks are starting to get on the ice here at Rogers Arena for their 11.30 practice. We'll bring in any news and notes that develop here. Plus, we will dive in to the good, the bad, and the ugly of the special teams. Three power play goals, but two more shorthanded goals against. What's going right? What's going wrong for the Canucks on special teams? That's all coming up next. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. As always, you can read Drance's work up at The Athletic as well. The Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. And the Canucks are on the ice here at Rogers Arena. Travis Green just finishing up doing some teaching at the whiteboard. We will see how they line up. If there's any news, notes, surprises, surprise absences, surprise additions, we will get it to you as soon as we can. We're live on site here at the rink. Uh, Lots of good texts coming in, including about Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland. This one comes in, and I knew this this talking point was going to come here, Drancer, but it says, unsigned, the only person talking about Podkolzin needing to learn his way is the coach justifying his lack of ice time. And it really, because of the string of rookies that Travis Green has had since he's been Canucks coach, he's been in this position a lot, right, where... Early in their career, very, very early in their career, he is criticized for not playing them enough. But then, pretty much inevitably, they go on to have extremely successful rookie rookie seasons for the team. And I think if you're Travis Green at a certain point, you must you must just want to say, look, I think I'm doing something right developing young players because they all play really well for me. And I do wonder, you know, we're only 10 games into Vasily Podkolzin's NHL career, right? The fact that he maybe didn't get a huge amount of ice time in those first nine games... I don't think that's the kind of thing that uh, is going to be a black mark against Travis Green, especially not if Pod Colson is an impact player for this team for the rest of the season. I mean, no question about it. Although, you know, I don't know that I – like, I've, I mean, how many times have I talked about consistency with Vasily yep. Pod Colson, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, it's a credit to him as far as I'm concerned, although I'm sure there's been a ton of work unseen 
that they've put in to work on some of the details that I've been saying, boy, I'm impressed with the improvement that he's shown in those areas. But, um, but you know, it's a credit to him that he seems to be figuring out this game so quickly. Yep. Like, you know, this level is so different from the international ice, and so many of the areas that he needed to improve were, like, exactly the areas you'd expect a guy coming over from Europe to struggle in. The fact that he's made such a quantum leap so quickly. I, I'm Honestly, it changes a lot about how I look at him and about how, like, his potential value. Like, you know, it really does make me look ahead at who else he can reel in in terms of, you know, the the, the value that he provides this team higher up the lineup than I was certainly a week ago. It's it's the kind of thing where he's – if he plays those minutes that he played yesterday consistently, that's great. But you're right. The conversation then changes to, okay, well, how high can he push his role, right? What kind of role? What, how many minutes a night can he push for if he's already been able to kind of climb climb up the lineup a little bit so far this year? And another unsigned text comes in. Garland and Pod Colson should be part of a regular line. That's the biggest take from yesterday's game. Hard to disagree with that right now. And, and you think the fact that they won a game uh, should actually – you know, allow Travis Green to show some consistency with his line combinations, which we haven't seen a lot of so far this year. Okay, I promised we were going to get into it. We got to dive in to the special teams. So let's start with, I think, the the unit that there were probably fewer questions about, even though it was driving people crazy in this market, and that's the power play, right? And You've said on this show before, Drancer, that ultimately there's just too much talent on the power play. They're going to figure it out at some point, and that happened last night. Now, I do think it's interesting that it happened with what I kind of consider the the default top power play unit being reunited, right, with both Brock Besser and Quinn Hughes there alongside Bo Horvat, Elias Pettersson, and JT Miller. But how much of the three goals last night just comes down to, as you said, look, the talent showing out, the talent winning out in the end, and ultimately, in your, as you said, in your mind, the power play was always going to be fine. Is that kind of the story from last night of the power play for you? Well, I definitely think that the club worked on and figured out some things like I definitely I mean no question you saw it you saw the rotation you saw the different type of approach so I mean I wouldn't discount that I'm not discounting that I just think that the overall sort of thrust of it was that actually although the results weren't there for the Canucks power play earlier in the season you know they weren't it wasn't the penalty kill no (laughs) it was never the penalty kill in terms of its overall effectiveness, I, I think there was clearly a different level potential-wise that the Canucks power play had to hit, like needed to hit, and everyone could see it, right? As as fine as the stats were, as average as the stats were, average isn't good enough when you have this much top-end talent right. that fits together so well on the power play. You know, average was never going to cut it, and then the 0-6 game against Nashville was ugly. Like, cost them two points. Yeah. A crucial two points, yeah. frankly. So... You know, I I understand it, but I do think when you look at sort of the overall play, the overall form, the overall amount that the Canucks power play was generating throughout the season, even prior to last night, you know, it was pretty clear that they were going to figure it out, for me anyway. That said, I do think, psychologically, they needed that Miller goal. That Miller goal five seconds into their first power play, I think that was a weight off the chest of so many of the players that play power play minutes for this team, you can't understate, like, I can say to you that I liked the statistical profile as much as I, you know, until the cows come home, but it doesn't change the fact that you need to feel good about yourself while doing it if you're going to score at this level. Like, they needed that. Um, no discounting that. And, and you know, it was funny, too. Like, I was watching the morning skate 
on Sunday at Rogers Arena from the stands because we weren't doing the radio show. Yeah. And <laughs> I noticed that they were trying movement, and there was this fun sequence where uh, the bumper player, it was Horvat, and Pet- Pedersen both tried to rotate yeah. and switch spots, and they kind of got in each other's way, and then there was a conversation about it. And then there was another one where the net front guy and Pedersen both had to go to uh, – both were supposed to rotate, and the pass came in for Pedersen like a classic one-timer pass, but Pedersen had just left the position, <laughs> and the puck just sort of fumbled into the corner, and there was another lengthy discussion. And I was just like, oh, boy, well, they're working on it. <laughs> and then JT Miller was talking post, post-morning post skate, and he said – I asked him about Vasily Podkolzin playing in the bumper on PP2, which he did in that drill. He said, I didn't even notice. We were just talking the whole time, and we had some things to sort out. Obviously, it worked. Obviously, yeah. it did. And, and you know, they just needed – I think they did need – you can't discount the human factor. They just needed one thing to go their way, and that JT Miller shot was everything. Well, and especially on the power play, like with so much of offensive hockey, right, you can develop the schematics, and, you know, I know there's an element of, okay, here's the things we want to do, and there's certain set plays you might try off a face-off, but it also comes down to – highly skilled players making highly skilled plays, right? And having the freedom and the confidence to be creative, to try those skilled, dangerous plays. And it's hard it's testing, hard to testing, do that one, two, one, two. if you are not a if you're not feeling confident, right? If you're not feeling great about where your game is, if you're gripping your stick, if you feel the pressure of, you know, oh for whatever your last number of chances on the power play kind of bearing down on you, you're not going to play with that same kind of freedom, right? And you're not going to try those same plays. So I agree with you. I think that goal Early from Miller made a big, big difference. I, I want to read a text from Michael from Twitter, <laughs> who yep. signed it exactly like that. Prior to last night, I'm surprised the power play woes didn't give Pod Colson a shot on PP1. What could have gone wrong? Well, again, the power play for me was roughly average in terms of how it was ticking along. After the Nashville debacle, he got a shot on PP2. PP2 barely played. Yep. Here's where I actually agree with Michael, because... I think you're onto something. I just think you picked the wrong special teams unit. There was something to lose from a power play that had a, a relatively average uh, overall underlying profile, despite the results. There is nothing to lose right now from the Canucks' league worst penalty kill. Like every single metric tells me that the Canucks' penalty kill is just as bad as it's looked. There is no like th- this is rock bottom in terms of how poorly a penalty kill can perform. Pod Colson. On the PK is something where, like, there is no downside to this. There is no downside to giving him a look there, to getting him the reps there. If you never earn, like, how do you earn power penalty kill experience? Like, if you need penalty kill experience to kill penalties, but you can't be on the penalty kill if you're inexperienced, how do you ever become experienced? Like, it doesn't make sense. It's catch-22. That's the area that I'd like to see them give Pod in a shot. And I know people say Hoaglander a lot, too, but... As good as Hoaglander is on the cycle, as many battles as he wins, as big as of, of a puck hound as he is, I really don't think stationary defensive play is a strength of his game still. Uh, Pod Colson, though, I mean, I just see that work rate. I just see the size. I just look at the best defensive wingers in the league and how they play and how they sort of match my impressions of Pod Colson playing. He's the guy I'd start to get reps. The, the penalty kill in the NHL, and especially, I think, for the Canucks, it's like a, a job posting for an entry-level job, but somehow that still requires two years of experience, right? And you're like, but but I'm entry-level. I'm, I'm trying to get the experience, and that's how it always strikes me, right? It's like, well, you've never killed penalties at the NHL level. It's like, yeah, and that, that will continue to be the case until you let me kill penalties at the NHL level. Uh, let's dive into the penalty kill then, because as you said, it has been ugly it's, you know, they're giving up multiple power play goals against every game. 
in that sense, it's <laughs> phenomenal that they've won a couple games on this homestand. I, I heard Halford and Bruff this morning say, um, you know, that's not sustainable. That can't yep. continue. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, there is nothing about the Canucks penalty kill to me that I'd point to and be like, well, that's not sustainable. You know, like, they haven't been unlucky. They've been league worst. The uh, League worst, man. The penalty kill reminds me of, you know in football how they have, like, the all-22 film, right? So you can see every player on the field. And sometimes there'll be plays where, you know, the defense gives up a big play. And then you go back and watch the all-22, and it's like, they weren't blitzing. They dropped everyone into coverage. And somehow all four receiving options were open. It's like, somehow everyone was open on the play. And that's what it, that's what it feels like watching the Canucks penalty kill right now. It's like... Nobody on the other team who has the puck is under pressure. Nobody is bothered. Everyone is open. It's like you normally, again, across sports defensively, you're going to take away some things at the expense of giving up other things, right? For the Canucks right now, it just seems like they're not taking anything off the table. And that might be just a layman's approach to what I'm seeing right now, but it just seems so consistently, incredibly easy for the other team to get the shots they want right now. They are giving up a scoring chance against per minute. Per minute. Yeah. Two on every single power play. Yeah. That is no way to live. Like, that is... You, you, you play with... You give... Every shot that comes at you, even the low percentage ones, provide an element of danger. Right? If you're giving up a scoring chance every minute, I mean, that's just way, way too much danger to live in. Like, that's... You know, going to lockdown, <laughs> unacceptable, un- intolerable levels of danger. So, yeah, I mean, Tyler Mott will help, but they need draws. Yeah. They need draws, and draws also aren't aren't sufficient because they won the draw, and then JT Miller, you know, after it got kept in, JT Miller had a breakdown. Honestly, it was the cross-seam pass that went both ways yes. to set up the Joe Pavelski goal. Both went through Miller's spot, and he knew that. He owned that post game. Uh, and then Pullman loses Jamie Benn at the net front. And, and you know, if you look at who, like, which Canucks players have been on the ice for scoring chances against or are the highest rate of expected goals for, uh, on the penalty kill, like, Dickinson and Pullman are among them. So one simple change that, like, I'd like to see right off the bat, uh, OEL Hamannick to start your yeah. penalty kill. Like, make Pullman and Myers your secondary killing pair. OEL Hamannick, those are probably your two best penalty killing defensemen. It's probably not sufficient to stem the bleeding, but that's like I'd go to that right away as just like tweak one that I think you know might might help uh, if you're if you're throwing darts against the wall just trying to come up with answers. For me, that's the most obvious one. It also strikes me you know you look at some of the guys who are playing big roles up front on the penalty kill. Right, it's Justin Bailey, and you know he, he's had his moments, but it hasn't since then. Since you know I think in the New York Rangers game. He looked impressive on the penalty kill. Since then, it hasn't been uh, as as effective. Justin Bailey, you know, got a late start on training camp. Wasn't really expected to be in the team's plans until he got the call-up from Abbotsford. And Yuho Lamico, who was a very late addition to the roster, right? Like, those are guys that are, are, are have kind of been thrust into these roles. And you're just seeing they're not, they're maybe not up to the task, right? And... It's oh, how dare you say that about my boy, Yuho Lamico. Drawing I'm another so key penalty I'm last so night. I'm so sorry. You're right. He did. My, he did. Close personal friend, Yuho Lamico. But <laughs> guy just works, Jamie. He just works. But it's great to talk about <laughs> Tyler Mott coming back. But Tyler Mott's one guy, right? And, yeah, I just, and he doesn't take draws. And he doesn't take face-offs. That's yeah. the thing. And, uh, you know, we like 
we can talk all we want about how faceoffs are overrated, but if there's anywhere where you want to be able to reliably win a draw, it's on the penalty kill, right? Like that's a part of the game where it really matters sometimes. Hundred percent. Those are high leverage draws because they kill thirty seconds plus. Even I say that, and I'm like the guy who sees the faceoff as just one puck battle, <laughs> right? Like, you know, and, and you know, we talked a little bit about uh, Dickinson earlier, and I still do think I still do think he's getting too much flack for his five on five play just because yep. he's he's not quite the thirty point guy. <laughs> the club advertised. I think that's a really good point by you, but uh, but yeah, I mean he he's just not the answer on the penalty kill, and maybe it's Sutter, maybe it's Mott, but you know you had you, you had to know like you had to know that Sutter was going to miss time at some point. I mean not for well, this reason, not for this reason. Yeah. you know what I'm saying. But like they even built they even built um, replacement insurance into his AAV. Like right, you you can't be. You can't be missing players like Mont and Sutter as much as this team is if you're a well-constructed club. And as much as we're talking about the power play success and how fun it was to watch and how it looks like the Canucks we expected, you know, the the fact of the matter, the simple fact of the matter is they've plus one. They're only plus one on the on special yeah. teams. Yeah. If you're giving it all back with a league-worst power penalty kill, um, you know, that, that pretty significantly neuters any good work that you're able to accomplish with the man advantage. And, I mean, plus one is, you know, a far sight better than the, the minus two they were regularly <laughs> racking up before sure. last night. But you're right. It's if you, you can't just, as you said, give it all back consistently. And I do wonder, you know, look, Tyler Mott, he's skating as an extra. He's close to coming back, but as you say, not a center. Brandon Sutter, it's been a while since we have an upgrade, since we've had an update on Brandon Sutter, right? And... For Brandon Sutter, like my perspective is more, I hope he's okay as an individual, as of a course. person, than no, anything of else. But, I, but my point there is, you know, I'm not sure you can look at this and say, well, it'll get better when Brandon Sutter returns. We have no idea what timeline Brandon Sutter is it, on. It, it, yeah, and and you're right. The timeline doesn't matter. No. I, and and to be clear, I was making the point about his overall durability. Oh no, right? I understand. Yeah. But, but what uh, I'm saying is, if you're if you're looking at this and saying it'll get better, I'm not saying you are doing this. No. But if you're a fan looking at it and saying it'll get better when Brandon Sutter returns, well, we have no idea when that is. He would make a huge difference, though. He like, would. He would. And and you know, one I mean, one thing we've talked about, or one thing I talked about a lot this summer anyway, was like the idea that Brandon Sutter had a chance. You know, at one point one two five cap hit as opposed to the four point three three five yep. that he played most of his to, to show Vancouver fans just how good he is, right? Just how like his penalty killing ability, his shooting ability, just like the overall reliability of his defensive game would have shone through it once priced appropriately. Yeah. And as we talk about Tanner Pearson, right? Like I, I know he's taking a ton of flack in our text message inbox and from fans. And you know, I think he's been one of their four three or four best play, best forwards anyway throughout the season. You know one thing I, I, I also sort of note is, like, fans in this market are savvy enough that in the cap era, they they see a guy priced at, at a rate that they don't think he's at, and they understand the opportunity cost of that and know that that's a drag, ultimately, on the overall value that this club can ice in, in a hard cap era, right? So it's like, it changes the discussion around him. Like, the bar that Tanner Pearson has to hit now because of that deal... Yeah. is really what's framing the conversation around him, which it, it's just such a fascinating dynamic, and it's a very Vancouver thing. And, yeah, you just immediately kind of make the adjustment in your head when you're when you're thinking or talking <laughs> about a player, you know, right? Like, you scale it based on cap hit. It's, it's unfortunate. It, and it's, it's just, as you said, that's just part of following the NHL 
uh, in the cap era. On the penalty kill, so this text comes in from Shiloh. Uh, the PK can afford to try players that haven't done it to see if they can do it. It can't be worse than where it's at. And I think that's a fair point. I mean, it can always get worse. You never know. But right now, it's been really, really bad. So it probably is time to try out some new things. Now, you were bringing it up in the context of Vasily Podkolzin, and the name I'm going to throw out, it's not necessarily a new name, but shouldn't Bo Horvat kill penalties at some point? The, the History suggests that's not a good combo. But also what we're seeing is bad, right? So I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you that he has not been good at it in his NHL career, and he's had his chances. But at a certain point, if your third and fourth line centers aren't getting it done, right? JT Miller is there. He plays on the wing normally. Bo Horvat is supposed to be your kind of meat and potatoes second line center who plays tough matchups. I get that it hasn't been successful, but at a certain point, you need somebody to win faceoffs and get that clear. As Shiloh says, it's not as if what they're running out there right now is working. I wonder if they do need to at least look at it again, despite, as you said, the track record of not having success, Bo Horvat, on the penalty kill. Well, look, I mean, look, at the at the end of the day, the PK is at a level where anything must be tried. Uh, by the way, I want to shout out Michael Chu. He's M Thriller Chu on Twitter, and he's put together a meme based on the Pod Colson Catch-22. <laughs> uh, so go check it out. I've retweeted it. Go check out my Twitter account at Thomas Drans to see Michael Chu's hilarious Pod Colson PK meme. Brilliant stuff, Michael. Well done. Yeah, so as you said, at, at, at this point, there's, uh, they there's gotta no try downside something. to anything yeah. you try. they got to try something. Yeah. And I, 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 I wonder if you do throw out, you know, like, Bo Horvat and Niels Hoaglander on the penalty kill at some point, just to give a jolt to the team, right? Just to almost send a message like, this is where we're at. We're trying anything right now. Can, can, can we talk really quickly? I know, we're, I know we're running late in the show, but I want to talk quickly about Tyler Myers. Let's do it. Corella DeVille himself. The six foot seven right-handed defenseman uh. that the Canucks have decided is you know I, look. I'm not saying they've decided this. I'm saying I look at last night's game, and one thing really jumps off the page to me. And no one's going to be talking about this today, but I really think it's like one thing. If you're listening to the show, if you watch this team yep. as rigorously as I'm sure you do, like one thing to watch for: Tyler Myers played the most minutes of any Canucks defenseman by 90 seconds at five on five last night. Yep. 90 seconds. That's a that's a golf. Right? Like, that's a massive gap between him and the next closest player. As Tucker Pullman's ice time drops, right? It hasn't taken this club that long to figure out, oh, this guy's probably best served on the third pair. Yeah. So he played third pair ice time last last night after yeah. being this club's top pair righty for the first five games of the season. As that's, ha- that's happened, one thing that I, I'm really curious to see if we see more of, Tyler Myers plays 19 minutes of five-on-five. OEL is his primary partner, but played five minutes also with Quinn Hughes as the Canucks assess their options and we've talked so much about the right-handed depth on this team as they assess their options for a top four righty to stabilize things is Tyler Myers their best option on both the first and the second pair (laughs) and do they create do they create a dynamic where you know we're so used to talking about a top four yeah what about a top three right what about a top three where you've got a narrow band of ice time distributed between Myers with the two lefties who played so well this season in OEL and Hughes, and then a sort of bottom three, and that can be any mix of guys, right? Burroughs, Rathbone, Hamannick, Pullman. Who play, Pullman, right? Who play a sort of a narrow bound, right? Like under 16 minutes. And the top guys are at 17 plus. I mean, is that something that we might see going forward? Because the way that the Canucks deployed Myers last night, and he played really well, 
overall in the game, played well with both, on both pairs. Is that like is he their best, most credible option to their overall top four righty issue? And if he is, how sustainable is that? Well, as he's good as he's been this month. How sustainable is that over the he's long He's clearly their best right-handed defenseman on the roster, right? Like, well, no, not even – there's not even a debate the, the, the about usage, it. The yeah. usage makes it clear. And as you said, I think there's a, a question of sustainability because this is – It's me, a big ass. This is, for me, pretty clearly the best stretch of hockey Tyler Myers has played as a Canuck. Uh, October 2019 was really strong. Sure. This is – he's been really good. He has been He's really been good. really good. And I think part of that, people were chalking up to being paired to follow Reckman Larson, who's been very good as well. But as you said – he play, he's played well with Quinn Hughes in his minutes this year so far too, and whether the coaching staff would ever come out and kind of address it in the in the terms you did, what we're already seeing is I think a recognition that they basically have three defensemen right now, and and you know we'll see how Travis Hammond gets up to speed, we'll see what happens with Jack Rathbone if he rejoins the team at some point, but right now they have three defensemen that they really trust, and it's Hughes. Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers. And as you said, that means through different combinations and in different game states, whether you're trailing, whether you're you're protecting a lead, whatever it is, you're gonna see those three guys play a ton of minutes. And that does mean you're gonna have those switches in in pairings. I thought it was interesting last night in the third period, as you said, Tucker Poolman getting third pairing minutes, but he was also out there with Oliver Ekman Larson in, in spots, right? <clears throat> protecting the lead late, which is totally. something you've said. Don't be surprised if we see that. And and I do think you, you you lay it out well. There's basically three defensemen they're going to lean on and they're going to rely on a lot, and then they're just gonna it's going to be kind of figuring it out day by day for the other three defensemen in the lineup. Yeah, and honestly, again, I, I it sort of reminds me of what Tampa Bay does, where you have like Cernak, Sergeyev, Hedman, and McDonough, and as the game goes along, like you know, technically Sergeyev and Cernak are their third pair. They take yeah. rushes third, but as the game progresses. McDonough shifts to the right, Sergeyev shifts to the right on occasion, both play with Hedman, and they just roll four guys. And even though Bogosian takes his line, uh, Rian Ruda takes his line rushes with Hedman, he's yeah. not a top pair guy. You know, I, I sort of wonder if we're going to get to a point kind of like that. It's, it's just that the Canucks only have sort of three guys right now um, that they seem to be using like that. I'm just, you know, it's not a trend yet. Really, last night was the first time I was keen to it. But something to watch for as the Canucks play Anaheim tomorrow and as, as the games go forward is does that stratification, that sort of halfway, that top three, bottom three among the Canucks defense, does that become a theme that the Canucks lean on this season? And what's become very clear, they need, and it's a big ask as you said, they need Tyler Myers, they need OEL to sustain, if not exactly this level of performance, something very, very close to this level of performance to have success this year. That is going to do it for us on the Canucks Hour. Thanks for listening. Thanks for texting. Don't forget, you can find us uh, on your favorite podcast catcher, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. You can always download, listen, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you have to. It makes a big, big difference. It helps the show a lot. Thanks for listening. This has been the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.